social equity and justice is actually really fundamental for ecological integrity. Those folks need social equity in the case of water quality and air quality. And when you tell the story, everyone's behind it, but where that money comes from is always uh, somebody else's problem. We have these worldviews, but they're shaped around the people that we live with and we interact with. And we can be wrong, and we might not know it if we're not exposed to other perspectives. From Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, this is Sound Effect. Here's your host, Megan Hayes. Appalachian State University thinks a lot about sustainability. It goes way beyond reducing our carbon footprint or diverting trash from our waste streams, although there's quite a bit of institutional intention there as well. But sustainability can be defined broadly, even while it has very personal, specific significance to each of us. Today, you'll hear three Appalachian professors continue a discussion about Appalachian's commitment to sustainability and how it manifests in our research, our creative work, our teaching and mentoring both in and out of the classroom, and our daily interactions. We see this conversation as a jumping off point and hope you will be inspired to listen to the entire conversation, which we've broken into four parts. You can approach these in any order, but you're listening to part two now, in which our panelists engage in a discussion of social equity. I've asked them to consider the question, what do issues of social justice have to do with sustainability? So let's introduce you to our panel and then we'll get started. Dr. Dinesh Padel is an assistant professor in the Department of Sustainable Development, whose research and teaching interests include climate change, identity politics, political economy, and subaltern social movements. Dr. Shay Tuberty is an associate professor in the Department of Biology, whose research interests are in ecological biology with a focus on water quality issues. Dr. Tuberty is also co-chair of Appalachian State University's Sustainability Council. And Dr. Todd Cherry is a professor in the Department of Economics, whose research and teaching interests include environmental and natural resource economics, regional economics, and public economics. Dr. Cherry is also the director of the Center for Economic Research and Policy Analysis at Appalachian and a senior research fellow at the Center for International Climate and Environmental Research, Oslo, in Norway. So let's get to their conversation. ongoing conversation. It's a conversation that I think very fortunately our students aren't letting us off the hook for having. And, you know, I think as a community, we want to embrace as well. So Dr. Patel, can you talk about what issues of social inequity have to do with sustainability? You've talked about that a little bit. Thank you. Uh, For me, equity is actually the basis, fundamental of achieving sustainability, if we want to achieve and whatever we mean about by that word sustainability. You know, there are historical contexts we must understand and actually use them to really devise and conceptualize sustainability programs. Around the world, world was colonized, right? We had colonialism, patriarchy, racism. These are, and many others, very fundamental historical issues that we haven't resolved. They have produced and reproduced again and again those differences differences along the line of race, gender, class, and so many other variables. Unless and until we deal with that, we are not going to achieve that kind of social well-being, which is fundamental to achieving sustainability. And other aspect to that is social equity and justice is actually really fundamental for ecological integrity. Research, all kinds of studies have found that Communities which are relatively equitable and less hierarchical 
they have better track record of conserving ecological diversity. That's very well known. And even the records of all over the places on indigenous people and all those people are how they are integrated to biodiversity. How, why? Because of their relative equity that they have maintained. These case studies demonstrate that equity is fundamental even simply to technically to achieve ecological sustainability, but to largely to achieve social justice and preserve ecology and understand economy as social well-being we must first deal with justice, that is equity. Because without that, you will not, there, let, let me give you two examples. I am from Nepal. Uh, I have studied uh, deforestation in the Himalayas for a long time. In the 70s, deforestation was a big issue in the Himalayas, especially in Nepal. And it was real. People were actually cutting down trees. Why? Because in the 50s and 60s, there were huge industrial deforestation. Companies came in and destroyed them. People were displaced. They had to leave their area. Then suddenly they realized that hey, we don't care about it. We keep deforestating. They left. They went further into marginal land and they started cutting trees further down there. It was real, right? This because in the one hand, very economic growth model of the 50s and 60s, that these countries like Nepal are poor because they do not have proper economic growth, led to industrial deforestation. And at the same time, industrial deforestation led this displacement of these people. And that desperation of the people because of their displacement led further destruction because they are desperate and they started cutting more trees. You see how that cycle operates. One, then another, and then another, right? But the 70s actually stayed to realize that it was not working. They stopped in the industrial deforestation, industrial forestry, and they started community forestry program, which is that giving people, okay, this is your forest, fulfill your basic needs first, and if you can sell more than what you consume, then you can do so. You are the owner. Since then, deforestation reduced like almost zero. Now in Nepal, actually, the forest is growing. It's more than what it was in the 70s. This is one clear example. I just came back from Nepal where there was huge earthquake uh, and came back a week ago. Earthquake was everywhere, but there are only certain type of people got killed and affected. They were mainly poor and women. Earthquake, very natural process, didn't happen equitably all over the places. It did happen physically, like the actual, this uh, movement of the waves were very similar all over the places, right? But the actual impact was different to different people because of the system that we have. We put some people in certain position and the other, another position, right? Think about even this big natural disaster, the, how society is formulated, how society is organized makes a difference. So therefore, without dealing with this fundamental question of equity, forget about achieving sustainability. I'm quite, um, you know, these are some, some of my experience from, from the Himalayas. Dr. Tumani? I need to restate the question. <laughs> um, so just in terms of social equity issues and particularly racial inequality, what does that have to do with sustainability? Okay. So uh, in my experiences, going back to the coal ash experience, that's really my own only one personally. And everything else that I could talk about is coming from my colleagues, both within biology and without. Uh, and this is a great example that Dinesh just talked about. But um, in the case of the, the coal ash effect, when EPAs you know, told the Tennessee Valley Authority, they needed to empty this, well, I guess it was 80 acres, 60 feet tall of coal ash that had been accumulating since the 50s. At the time, the Kingston Coal Fire Power Plant was 
the largest power plant based on coal usage in the United States and probably the world. And in the 50s, they were like, you know, well, we don't have anywhere to put all this ash. So for now, let's just, uh, let's just put it in the river. In the 70s, EPA said, yeah, that's not a good idea. Why don't you put a, at least put a wall around it and contain it, keep it from going into the reservoirs. And then in 2008, the, the walls gave out and a billion gallons of coal sludge, coal ash sludge went into the river there. The community around it actually was a very wealthy one. If you go there, there are eagles and ospreys flying around. There's rookeries of all kinds of aquatic birds, including great blue herons. And they're, you know, they look like pterodactyls as they're landing in these treetops and these you know, eight-foot-wide nests on top of these trees. It's pretty spectacular. It's actually a, a fish and wildlife bird sanctuary, the actual coal pond. So um, in Tennessee, that was a long-standing power source built by the Tennessee Valley Authority. And then subsequently, the reservoirs around it became inhabited by pretty wealthy folks. This is just outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. But when the spill happened, those folks sold their properties to TVA and went somewhere else. The TVA was forced to extract all of the coal ash and move it somewhere else. They took bids in from the community around it. They had to have uh, a train track coming by their community. They had to have an updated landfill with a liner to prevent any leachate from the coal ash. And that home turned out to be this small community in, in Alabama, which I mentioned is one of the poorest counties in the state of Alabama, and nearly 100% of the children going to public school there are on food waivers. So they were more than happy to make millions of dollars from accepting the coal ash. And again, the effects, the immediate effects as far as toxins go, affected the community right around the landfill, not the entire community. As soon as that ash started going there, I started getting calls from river keepers in Alabama. Could I start sampling there? And, you know, so it was immediately impacting the, the community there. And, of course, 100% black. So as far as race effects go, this is an example of how that is affected all the time. And as far as the development of certain towns and communities around industries, uh, I can give you another example of the Alcoa the Aluminum Company of America in Baden, North Carolina, was, was built right on a narrows area of the Yadkin River at the turn of the century. The community to the west of Baden was all 100% black, and to the east of it was 100% white, and that's where you find the country clubs and the beautiful homes. And I've been working with that community because there are 40 landfills around Baden full of all of the waste products of producing aluminum, which is highly toxic. And this is one of the only communities of a retired Alcoa site that isn't a Superfund site, which is an EPA, you know, mega bucks cleanup effort. And so we're working to make that community, bring that, the equity in that community up by removing a lot of these toxins that are leaching into their groundwater. You'll get a spontaneous fire forming from the uh, gases being emitted from the landfills and they'll burn for months. And that's just uh, the way it is in this community. So those folks need social equity in the, in the case of water quality and air quality that they deserve. And so it didn't happen in the past. And so these, these wrongs need to be made right. And there's many, many cases in both North America and elsewhere. And so, again, that's a big part of sustainability. It's the part that is often hidden from the public's perception of what is right and wrong. And then when you tell the story, everyone's behind it. But where that money comes from is always uh, somebody else's problem. Sounds like a good segue for Dr. Cherry. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to mention how diversity is valuable on campus and intellectual community, because as Shay alluded to before, it's like 
humans, we have this tendency to be around people that we share views with, and we have this selective exposure to information that confirms our preconceived notions, and we have these worldviews that are shaped around the people that we live with and we interact with, and we can be wrong, and we might not know it if we're not exposed to other perspectives. And some of the climate change research actually has shown that uh, you can predict who is a denier of the science uh, just based on their worldviews. It has nothing to do with their knowledge of the situation. One aspect of that is that people self-select into these echo chambers. And once you're in this echo chamber of thought, you could be the most extreme uh, person in terms of your views on an issue, but in your echo chamber, you feel like you're normal. You feel like you're average. It's imperative for everyone to understand the problems and the bigger picture. We all have to get out of our echo chambers and interact with people that we that we might not normally do. And that's one of the great things about going, kids coming to college and living on campus and, and challenging themselves and their thinking about problems and being exposed to these new ideas. So, um, Dr. Shubin, can you talk about what you feel like a three E's approach to sustainability looks like? And this ties in a little bit to what Dr. Pradell talked about earlier. So I think to really discuss appropriately the three E's, we need to back up a step and talk about why we have three E's. Why isn't it 10? Why isn't it one? And I think three E's was what we needed to fully immerse the academic community at App State. And honestly, any academic institution would be remiss if they didn't focus on at least some component of these three E's. So App State isn't really unique in what we're doing. A lot of universities are trying to do what we're doing. What three E's did was allow for most of, not all, but most of the academic community at App State to find a way to buy in to the strategic plan. And it does make perfect sense. When we talk about our case studies, you can always come up with three aspects of it, the inequity or equity, the energy use, and the environmental impacts of existing in a place. So those three make it very simple. And then you find one of those E's or maybe a combination of them that your particular uh, scholarly activities fit within or your teaching activities fit within. And, you know, one of my goals as the co-chair of sustainability right now is to increase the number of faculty that identify themselves with one of these E's or multiple E's, even better, and then get them to actively engage with the Office of Sustainability to share what they do, you know, to a much lesser and less important thing is just to get them tallied into what percent of our academics are actually involving the self in sustainability. And this is, just goes for a, uh, there's an organization called ASHI that we actually get certified through. And one of the goals of the office itself is to get ASU in that top 10, you know, that top echelon of universities nationally that call themselves sustainable. And so, you know, right now we have a majority of our faculty, you know, that feel that their class or their research is sustainable related. So I think the three E's is just a way, you know, just a way that we can involve as many as we can. So we don't want to leave people left out. And, you know, one of the immediate worries was programs like music or, or art would be left out. And it turns out, that, like I said already, that the sustainable art community is really well organized and it's actually a national movement. They were the first to put a grants program together for students, faculty, to push that effort forward. And so I feel like they're actually one of our best voices on campus and uh, one of our most organized groups, as it turns out. So really, there isn't 
any aspect of the university community that's being left out because of, you know, kind of this broad approach to using the three E's. And it could be more, but I think three is manageable. And uh, I think that's kind of where that came from. Yeah, I feel the same. This university is particular in balancing all these mostly three E's um, and taking care of multiple aspects of sustainability, which is quite unique. And I feel quite proud of to be part of it. But largely, globally, how we understand 3E is problematic. That's what I, I was saying, and I repeat it again. When you talk about 3Es, that came as a way to define sustainability in the 80s, basically. It's a very economy-centered 3Es. Even though you have 3Es, you are not talking about 33% of that, 30% of that, another 3, 33% of another 3. What you are talking about is economy is the E, capital E, and other two E's, equity and other E's, are basically cosmetics for the, the big E, that is economic growth. Look at the, you know, the sustainability came since the 70s. Now look at the result now. E- environment is further destroyed, right? Social justice and equity is further eroded. Our society is further divided. The gap between rich and poor is enormous, which was not the case in the 70s. So if we had taken care of all these three E's equally and equitably, we wouldn't have that this situation, right? So we must understand the fact. So we are using other two E's as a cosmetics to make look like good. Just examples. We have all these technologies, green technology, solar, very important. Recycling, you know, we feel so good about it. We are part of sustainability because I recycle my plastic, right? But what is it doing? It is not reducing the very problem, very fundamental problem of creating very unsustainable world. What it is doing is giving some kind of good feeling to you and you keep doing business as usual. So therefore, we shouldn't think about three is in very econocentric, very economy dominant way. We should think probably we, W-E-E, which is social well-being, equity and ecology, probably. And the way we understand economy, if we do not do that and if we keep uh, these three is as it is, the ecology becomes kind of a marketable, a tool to commodify and make a part of economy. Ecology doesn't remain as it is, as in important elements of global sustainability, right? It just becomes part of economy. If that's what we want, then we let's not even call three, just one E, big E, done, economy. That's what it is driving. And another thing is, you know, the way we understand economy is about growth money which is our unfortunate reality right and we must change that what is our end goal making money is our end goal or end goal is something else there should be something else you want to be rich you want to have more money why because you want to achieve something else that something else should be different for some people it is happiness for many other people very peaceful kind of situation right so maybe in goal is something else. Economy is just simply a means to achieve that end goal. And without defining that end goal, what we are doing is we are putting economy as our already itself as end goal, which is not the case. When economy becomes an end goal, then ecology and equity become secondary to that. So therefore, we are not dealing three E's in a very orderly parallel way. What we are dealing is we are dealing one big E, then probably other two E to talk about that big E. 
So I'm sorry to differ with uh, this mainstream understanding of uh, economy, ecology, and uh, equity, but that's what it is. Unless and until we realize that very painful process of realizing that will not make a difference. Well, I think that was one of our challenges in looking, talking about how to explain you know, the three E's was trying to pull them apart and talk about them individually. But it sounds like what, what both of you are saying so far is that you really cannot pull them apart. You have to talk about them all as one. Absolutely. Well, that's uh, the key is it's a uniform system, and there's different components of that system. Our social systems, which is the economic system, is part of that, and then you have the government system. The rules that we set forth dictate the outcomes we have. When you're looking at policy, if you don't like the outcomes that you're generating, then you can change the rules of the game, so to speak. One thing to keep in mind is that there's not one economic set of rules. There are different rules, different policies, and some countries are far different than the U.S. And some, You can keep a, a market system, which I don't think you could ever get away from, but have rules that give you the outcomes that you want. There's an old saying that markets are great servants, but they're really bad masters. And that's the, you have to keep, it, keep that in mind. Is that you have to use the, the, the effectiveness and the power of markets to generate the outcomes that you want. But, but those outcomes are social, environmental, and everything that, that, that goes with that. So this leads me to a question, um, you know, it's a pretty philosophical question, but is there a point at which we can say, either as an institution or a community or a nation or even a planet, that we have achieved this just and sustainable society or system or state of being? You would like to think so. Um, I don't think that's possible, but I don't think that's the question. The challenge is to move towards that ideal and to work towards improving things and and setting up our systems to generate the outcomes that we want. It's, it's a journey, and I think that's the, that's the challenge in front of us. I totally agree. It's a journey. We cannot really fix any okay, you know, benchmark. When we reach there, we'll be set. You know. That's the problem. That's how it is, global problem. We always set a benchmark. Okay, uh, you know, Mexico, you are poor. You'll be like USA, and then you'll be good enough, right? That's how we projected all these global developments around the world. We compare countries. Oh, he, one country is here, another country is down there, because we always like to see it through these benchmarks, and that's what is causing the problem since centuries, that's how it is. So we have to forget about these benchmarks. But one thing very important about this question is that then what? What should we do, right? The question again comes, let's forget these benchmarks in other side, the very economic growth side, very model of development side, very method of competition side. If we forget that benchmark, if we start redefining our society, that, okay, the society that has more wealth is prosperous and that's a good society, I think we'll, we'll change this discourse. We'll, then we'll find new ways of understanding and that will lead to certain very unknown but good future. Otherwise, we have already fixed benchmarks, so many other benchmarks, and they are preventing us even to think beyond them such as, for example, he's talking about market. He thinks it's impossible to think beyond it. Probably, yes, it is so dominant, so powerful, but probably it is possible to think beyond that. And it is not necessary to think that market exploits all the time, but that the way market is mobilized right now, it is quite exploiting, right? Exploiting both human and natural processes, right? So we must be able to think really beyond that 
and forget about these benchmarks they are preventing us to think our very flexible and probably good future i think that that would be my response those are both great comments i think um one of the things i learned this summer attending the energy summit on campus which is really become for the region a hotbed of discussion of what the world could look like where our energy consumption and production can go i heard some really interesting comments on how already in other countries germany and a number of others where they have gone away from centralized energy production based on coal and oil towards a diffuse production of energy from housetop solar to the point where every community is full of people with solar panels on their on their roofs that were affordable to put in that were aided by tax relief and or government assistance and having it produced in countries that focused on solar production rather than assuming it'll never be the, the answer for energy production and really not investing in infrastructure to make it happen. And what's happened there is that each community owns its own energy production. Every house has all the energy it needs for free and then sells to a integrator, if you will, to get rid of their extra energy for those that don't have solar capacity on their houses. And what it has done is upended the entire economics of and, and the wealth dispersion from energy production. So instead of having one really rich company that controls all the political and economic power, you've got communities that own it. And it's taking things back to what we assumed would happen in a democracy. And so that was, to me, one of the most eye-opening and extremely exciting things that's coming on the horizon. We like to talk about how China's you know, the super polluter, along with the United States and others. And, but China, at least, is already not filling the, the orders for the coal-fired power plants that you know, we all talk about. They open one a month. They're not even using those anymore. They are actually going towards solar, and they have like 10, 15 times the solar capacity we do in the United States already, and their annual production is at that high level. And we were told by some of the best minds in the country that if we had 10 years of that kind of productivity of solar, we could go 100% to solar United States. That was the first time that's ever come to my table. So I got really excited about where things are going. And it would, I mean, you talk about markets and stuff. You know, I think humans just think that the way things are is the best way it could be. If they're not you know, involved in environmentalism or social equity, they don't realize what is at the root of all that. As an environmentalist, I'm looking for any answer to, you know, how can we stop aerial deposition of nitrates and sulfates and, you know, acid rain in the, in the mountaintops? I just spent a summer working with high school kids where we proved acid rain is still really important, even though the sulfate production in the coal-fired power plants of Tennessee, owned by TVA, has been reduced by over 40% in the last 20 years. So it's still leaching from the forest floors into these streams, and it's still acidifying the water. How long is that going to keep affecting us? But, you know, how can we stop that more immediately? So it's exciting to me you know, as an academic. You're probably in the know more than somebody outside of that, the academy of what is possible. And I think that, you know, the ivory tower we live in, although it might be laughable at times of what, you know, we think would be perfect and, you know, these impossible things that we'd like to happen tomorrow, the long-term goals of the academy is to use history knowledge of economics, mathematics, environmentalism, socialism, and pull it all together to say, all right, this is the direction we should be going. Because history tells us that even the most dominant communities or civilizations 
have been doomed from the get-go based on their lack of knowledge of environmental impacts. The list goes on and on and on. So the fact that, you know, as human beings in the United States, we think that our economy is going to last forever. Is it sustainable? It is not. All the signs are there. I like to talk about the United States as a, a social experiment that's really working pretty well. And we've come to the top echelons of the developed countries because of how well it works, but it's not sustainable the way it is traditionally. So we need to tweak it. And um, I think those tweaks are going to happen sooner than later. And that gives me a lot of hope that, um, that we will be moving towards sustainability. Yet with every new generation, we have to reteach those goals. And I think that's why we'll never achieve it, just because you can't assume that a baby being born already knows how to be sustainable. You have to teach them. And so it's one of those constant efforts. This conversation continues with a fascinating discussion rooted in economics as our experts tackle the question, how do we know if we're making any progress? Next time on Sound Effect. Today's show is written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Dave Blanks, and me, Megan Hayes. Our sound engineer is Dave Blanks. Our web team is Pete Montaldi and Alex Waterworth. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications Team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Megan Hayes. Hi, Sound Effect listeners. Just a quick note about these sustainability conversations. We were actually surprised, pleasantly surprised, and in retrospect, we really shouldn't have been surprised, but we were, that this conversation got so deep so fast. And we knew even before we started recording the conversation with Drs. Podell, Tuberty, and Cherry, who we dubbed the three wise men, that we needed to hear from wise women as well. Women and men from more disciplines like art and education and government and justice studies, and from people who help run our campus as well as teach our students. And pretty quickly, we understood this was becoming its own program. So we decided to launch a new podcast series hosted by a sustainability expert, someone who is so steeped in the concept that it literally informs his daily life, what he eats, drives, how he interacts with others, why his lights are never turned on in his office. That person is Dr. Lee Ball, and he leads the Office of Sustainability here at Appalachian. His new podcast series is called Find Your Sustainability, and you can hear it on iTunes or at AppalachianMagazine.org. Hope you enjoy it and Lee as much as we do.